0: Do you think people considered you sort of a renegade climber? They probably think I'm pretty independent. It's all right. I don't care what they think.
1: Hey, everyone. I'm Dave Alley, and this is All Things Climbing. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dave Oleski, the director and producer of the documentary film about Fred Becky's life called Dirtbag, the Legend of Fred Becky. Fred, who passed away in 2017 at the age of 94, was and remains one of the few truly iconic figures in climbing. Born in 1923 and already a blossoming mountaineer by his early teens, Fred quickly made a name for himself by notching repeats of some of the era's more serious routes, perhaps most prominently the south face of Mount Waddington in 1942. This climb marked just the second ascent of both the route and the peak. Fred was 19 at the time and armed with equipment that would strike the modern mountaineer as paleolithic. Around this same time, he began accumulating what would become the superlative list of first ascents of both routes and peaks across North America, which Fred continually added to until late in his life. Many of the peaks are now relatively well-traveled by climbers, and many of the routes are now established classics. A very, very short sample of this list includes Mount Despair and Forbidden Peak in 1939 and 1940, respectively, the North Ridge of Mount Baker the first ascent of Devil's Thumb and the West Ridge of Mount Hunter, both in Alaska, and modern rock classics like the Becky Chenard in The Bugaboos and El Matador on Devil's Tower in Wyoming. This storied career was fueled by an unflagging obsession for climbing that can accurately be described both as genius and pathological. Some of the qualities that gave Fred the keys to the kingdom at a time when whole ranges were waiting to see footsteps for the first time also made him famously challenging as a partner and as a person. These moments of interpersonal tension became canon when he was pointedly left off of the 1963 American team to summit Mount Everest. Perhaps more inspiring than his career highlights is his unending passion for climbing. Fred climbed into his 90s and never grew out of his love for the mountains. Seeing someone this engaged in life and living so actively right until the end is magnetic regardless of the pursuit, and I was struck by this quality on the few occasions we met. Because he remained so active in the mountains until so late in his life, many, many climbers, particularly in the Northwest, have stories from their trips or encounters with Fred. And thankfully, Dave Oleski was smart enough to turn these moments and stories into a documentary film. In our conversation, Dave shared some of his own stories about his time with Fred, what it was like to make a documentary about such a complex and at times reticent figure, and his favorite scenes and themes that ultimately didn't make it into the final cut of the film. The film is currently on tour now. I had a chance to see the screening at the American Mountaineering Center in Golden, and I strongly encourage you to see it. It's compelling and accessible even for non-climbers, and offers a loving but fair look at who Fred was and why he is considered one of the greatest climbers who ever lived. Here's my conversation with Dave. He's a dirtbag, and because of that, I don't think he'll get the recognition that he really deserves Well, I guess uh, I I was hoping to start a little bit at the beginning and and ask you about the genesis of the project.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, basically, um, I don't know, I I kind of have seen over the years, you know, all these legends kind of, you know, they come and go and they end up passing away. And, you know, in particular, like, you know, climbing legends, there'll be like a short obituary in the back of a climbing magazine or something. And. And then they're just sort of forgotten about, you know, and 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 so that's always sort of struck me like, God, that's too bad that happens to these people because they've, they've lived such extraordinary lives. And, you know, Fred in particular is just one of those guys that, you know, as a climber, I was like, God, he's you know, you hear you just hear stories about him you know, forever. And I, you know, he's just always kind of in the back of my mind is like, wow, that guy would be in a really interesting person to you know learn more about and and to do a documentary film about and so I sat down and you know gave it a lot of thought and sat down and actually wrote Fred a letter and um just kind of like explaining who I was and why I was interested in in um you know talking to him about doing a film on his life and this and that and you know was one of those things where you do it and you're like you sent you you know you stick it in the mail and you're like I'll probably never ever yeah here yes from him and uh sure enough like I get um I get I got a response from Fred and it turned out I was in Colorado he was in Washington and he was going to be in Utah skiing and so I went out and um met him over a weekend and uh funny thing this is like a side note story but you know I was supposed to meet him like I don't know on a Sunday or something and I I'm like oh, I'll just go out and ski for the weekend and ski at Alta, and. And, um, so I was like gearing up, getting ready to ski. And I, like, I look over and there's this like gear all over the place, like <laughs> ski poles thrown on the snow, like gloves, goggles, you know, a hat. I'm like, what the, what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> and I look up and it's Becky, like getting ready to go skiing. And, um, there's so I ski over. Total yard sale, haven't even left. Total yard <laughs> sale at the, base, at the base of the mountain and stuff is just spread out everywhere. Uh, and I ski over to him. And I'm like, Hey, Fred, you know, I'm. I'm Dave Valesky. We're supposed to meet, meet this weekend, talk about the documentary film. And he just looks up and he's like, "Not now. I'm busy. I'm going skiing." <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, "That was my very, Okey-doke. very first interaction with Fred," and I was like, "Oh my god." Yeah, <laughs> so, that's like that's like so very
1: um. It encapsulates something essential about him, I think. Yeah, it's totally. Very, very he was,
0: like <laughs> focused on what he was going to do and he yes. couldn't be bothered. Like, and I, I was like thinking in my mind and like, oh, this will be great. Like, I'll go do some runs with Fred. It'll be like the perfect way to sort of get to get to talk to him and stuff. And he had no interest whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then like that weekend I, I kept trying to get in touch with him, and, and, um, I'm not a very aggressive, like I don't, you know, try to hunt people down or whatever. And anyways, I ended up leaving him 13 voice messages Nice, <laughs> and was literally like my car to drive home, drive back to Colorado. Cause he hadn't responded. And, um, and I get a phone call from him and, uh, he's like, yeah, let's meet, you know? And so we went and grabbed coffee and donuts and, um, his staple (laughs) and, and uh, I pitched him on the idea of doing a documentary and it's like his first response was why would anyone, you know, who cares about any of that? Why would anyone want to watch something about on me or, you know? And so I, that was like even made him a more interesting character to me immediately. And uh, a good friend of mine who I've worked with on other projects named Jeff Wanger was involved early on in the project and through, through a big portion of it. And he and I went out, actually went out to Seattle and uh, met up with Fred in his house. And he, he let us start going through his archives. So we, we started doing that and realizing real quick that there was just this treasure trove of amazing material.
1: <laughs> when you say archives at his house, what are we, uh, what are we picturing? Is it like bins of, of uh, like sheafs of paper?
0: You know, everything from he had like his closet full of slide carousels to, you know, like boxes full of, of black and white photos and prints to, you know, negatives. Um, it was just like this crazy hodgepodge of material. And, um, you know, it was, so it took a, it took a tremendous amount of time to sort of siphon through that and, and and look at stuff. And in the end, we, you know, just photographs alone, I think we had 10,000 still photographs, um, that, you know, came from Fred and of course came from other sources. But, you know, I mean, then, you know, like four or five years into the project, Fred says to me, he's like, Oh, you know, are you interested? I've got these, I've got this box of journals that, that, you know, I wrote and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, these journals, I I used to keep a journal when I was a kid (laughs) And so, like, oh my God, he unveils this like, this amazing box of journals that dated back to when he was like five years old, and um, so we had all this like amazing material. That the trick was like trying to figure out how to like how to incorporate it, you know, and how to and you know how to make it interesting. So it was it was a tricky process for sure. I,
1: man, I can imagine. I mean, there's just just based on the volume of stuff to work with, you know, he was obviously so prolific and and lived for so long and was active for so long. So, you know, it's a huge, um, I'm imagining just like a totally unorganized pile of stuff. That's all really like good usable material, but it's like, how do you, how to make sense of it? You know?
0: Um, Yeah. I mean, he was, he was actually pretty organized. I mean, considering like how long he'd kept stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, it was, it wasn't like, you know, like museum quality organization or something, but it was, it was, it was pretty well kept and, and organized. And he actually, there's a story that he lost a ton of stuff cause he had, he was storing boxes of materials in somebody's basement or something and it flooded. So he actually lost like a huge amount of like really cool, cool stuff that we never even got to see. Uh. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's such a drag.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, because he was—he was a you know just a brilliant man, and um, you know, big part of his big part of his life and career was was his writing career. And yeah. so, you know, he was like a meticulous researcher, and and would keep things you know pretty pretty organized. And so that was that was a huge plus for us mm. that that he had that material, and yeah, we were able to get access to it.
1: Yeah, it's he was such a. Uh, so I guess I, I should just let you know for, for the rest of this conversation, I ran into Fred, I met, met Fred a handful of times that, you know, I would never um, claim to be like a, a close associate of his or anything like that. I, you know, I live in Colorado, not in, not in Washington, but we ran into each other several times climbing in Washington and he uh, we went out for coffee a whole bunch when he was trying to recruit me to do sure. Lord knows what I think, um, originally he was trying to look for a partner to do a route on Mount Stewart. And then later on he was, um, he lobbied me pretty heavily to go and try Mount Assiniboine with him. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, it's so funny when I, I remember making the decision not to go to Assiniboine mm-hmm. and when I saw your film and it's talking about how that was one of the, like the few things that that were kind of left undone for him, I was like, Oh God, like dagger to the heart, you know? (laughs) Uh, And, uh, but you know, he, um, yeah, I just, I had, um, these interactions with him where I'd be in his car and we'd be driving somewhere and, the car was a disaster, and so it was. The, it was sort of the yard sale that you were describing at the ski slope. But then right. you'd open up his either the Cascade, you know, trilogy of guidebooks that he'd written, or more recently that um, Becky's, you know, one hundred classic routes, mm-hmm. sort of anthology that he put together. And you look at the topos, and the descriptions are so on point that you're like, "Well, are you really all over the place? Like, is you, are you really this much of a mess, or is that just kind of like the facade because you can't be bothered to care?" about what the rest of us think, but like the stuff that you care about is like totally in order all the ducks in a row, you know, it, like he, it wasn't just as simple as like, Oh, this guy's a total mess,
0: you know? Yeah, no, I think, um, I don't think he was a mess at all. Like, I mean, I think he was, he was, um, super calculated when it, when it came to any trip or whether it was a, a writing project or anything else. Like he, he was, um, really organized and and I think that actually led to a lot of his successes in the mountains was that he yeah. was so organized like he was so on point with what was happening with the weather mm-hmm. um you know tracking down the right partners the right time of year the the snow conditions or or whatever like he he had that dialed yeah. and um and and I think that's what actually you know like when you looked at Fred, he he was he was like and he looked at his car or his house or whatever, like it was all just in, in shambles, but mm-hmm. the mon- sort of the mundane things in life, yes. like just did, didn't mean anything. Yes.
1: <laughs> and you know, that contrast is so funny. Cause like when you were talking about your, your um, introduction to him at the base of the ski mountain, I, mine was on a trail, I guess, but it was sort of similar. And you know, That was like one of the most charming things maybe about the very little time that I did get to spend with him is that there was no such thing as like a banal interaction with him, you know, (laughs) like you could be do and anything was somehow like, Oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening in front of my face.
0: Yeah, we used to always joke because we, you know, spending so much time with him and like, um, you know, we'd be at different whatever, different climbing areas or different regions where a lot of climbers would recognize Fred, and and it was really always pretty funny to watch the interaction he'd have with like someone who would be like, "Is that you know, is that Fred Becky?" And you're be like, "Yeah, that's Fred." You know, go, you yeah, know, if you want to, yeah, have a chat with him, whatever. And like, I think people's expectations just got completely blown out of the water like more times than not because most of the time like you know someone would come up to him and like in awe and he would just just totally ignore him or just not be very friendly or you know and like other times other times it was different like if he was in the mood like he could chat someone up forever and Mm -hmm. you know talk about a route or you know something and but it's just like we saw it over and over again where people were just kind of walked away with their tail tucked between their legs like oh my god just, got yeah. <laughs> what just happened you know yeah, yeah. I met my idol and it kind of wasn't exactly the way I thought it was going to go
1: well so yeah then that's it that, I wonder it was just I was going to ask you this a little bit earlier but I it makes me wonder if if that's a little tied up in where you were describing his his genuine like I guess him, him, his suspicion that there would be like very little interest in a movie about his life. Right. Mm-hmm. I, you know, that seems somehow all connected to this larger, like very sincere lack of interest in, you know, fame or notoriety or self-promotion or any of that stuff. You know, I don't think that that's false modesty at all for him to say, well, is anybody going to be interested in this? You know? And I wonder if, if you felt like that was, you know, I guess, in part responsible for those types of interactions where he was like, why is this person fawning over me? Or was he just genuinely like, I don't feel up for this right now.
0: I think, you know, I I think I always sort of came to the conclusion that Fred just didn't have much interest in, in what he'd done like in the past. It was always like moving forward and what he was, what he was doing at the time or what he was going to do or what he was planning. And so I think he just, you know, he was he 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 really was a very humble person um, in regards to what he accomplished. But I think part of that was just like he he was aware of what he'd done, but he just didn't care. Like he was way more interested in what he was going to do, and that and that um, that trend or that attitude of his or way of way of living his life, like that continued all the way to the end mm-hmm. and um which I found like really amazing you know like he did he didn't rest on his laurels at all like he was like you know he he basically he had booked um a trip like he booked an airline ticket to Garwal, India for for the spring of 2018 like two months before he died Jesus, and, and he was just you know he couldn't even he wasn't am, even ambulatory at that point it was like you know needed help getting around and stuff. But like in his mind, he was, he was like, why can't I do it? I'll, you know, I'm going to give it a shot. And so he was always looking forward, which I found to be, you know, really inspirational. A lot of times like when we were with him on climbs and stuff and he would, he would fail or struggle and get kind of frustrated for a minute, but then quickly like move on to like the next thing we would, you know, a lot of the guys that sort of spent time with him, in his later years be like, God, he's like, so delusional, you know, but at the same time, it's like super inspirational.
1: <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's almost like he didn't know how to not be planning the next thing. Yeah. And, um, it's really hard for me to think of another example of people who find something that they're interested in and they just do it unapologetically forever, you know, until they're kind of like dragged out of the room feet first and
0: yeah, you know, yeah, was, I mean um, I used to I used to like I've said this before and other other conversations and stuff, but I always I just assumed that no matter what Fred had chosen to do, he would have been successful at it because yeah. he was so so driven and you know, I mean you could argue there's like obsessive compulsiveness and, and, and that that whole thing as well, but like he was so passionate and driven like about mountains, but had it had it been painting or mathematics or science or whatever like I, I have no doubt or business I mean I think he would have excelled at whatever he chose to do just because he he had that drive and yeah. you know it, it is it is really rare and I'd often ask people in interviews I'm like well can you you know could you compare him to somebody else in history and you know the names that would come up were like Van Gogh and like, you right know, like like you know famous musicians yeah and, like mad people scientist are, types almost. Yeah. I mean, people, that are just, there are very, very few of them out there, you know? And um, and, and I think he was calculated in the way that the decis- decisions he made, like not to have a family, not to, not to be married. Yeah. Um, he knew those things would um, distract from what he was trying to do. And so he purposefully didn't go down those roads, you know? Yeah.
1: I was also really impressed by his, um, you know, zeal for seeking out new partners so late in his career. I mean, Mm -hmm. the fact that he was trying to recruit me to do these climbs with him, I was a total nobody. I mean, you know, obviously as a climber, but to him, I mean, and you know, at the time I was like, you don't know (laughs) if I'm going to be a safe partner for you to do this mountain with, you know? And, um, I remember saying, oh, but yeah, but I don't have he's like, oh, this, you know, this route that I want to do, it's the actually I have an email from him that I'm looking at right now. And it's like the most amazing thing in the world, in the sense that it's like this is obviously a person for whom email was not like central to his generation, right? Because the entire email is capitalized except for the first letter of each sentence so like obviously he has caps lock on unbeknownst to him you know and he's like you know and um so he's pitching this route steep but doable mostly steep snow a few pitches of blue ice (laughs) and uh i was like man i don't have any ice gear with me and you know i've done very few of that type of mountaineering and he's like don't care don't no problem got I got tons of boots I got all this you know all these tools just like if you have a passport you know just come to my house we'll get in my car we're like we'll leave tonight And I was like oh my god (laughs) you know what are you thinking but I have to um I kind of have to tip my hat for the guy not only for staying alive just generally but staying alive with that sort of like like if that's your protocol for recruiting partners to go do big mountain routes like that's nice work um not having that come back to bite you
0: Yeah, I think I mean, but I think honestly, like I got, you know, one of the coolest things for me in this project is like having met a lot of Fred's friends and those his friends have become my my friends and just great people, you know, and I think Fred had a really, a really good sense of people and um, uh, like sort of like feeling them out, like not, you know, maybe not necessarily like knowing your your climbing background or whatever, but he was just like, ah, I could hang with this guy in the mountains. And I think there, <laughs> yeah. there's a big, a, a lot to be said about that. You know, like if you're going to go on a trip with somebody, you want to, y- you know, they could be the greatest climber in the world, but if they're a jerk, like, you don't want to spend time with them. You know, yeah. And I think I think Fred kind of went went that route a lot of times, especially you know in his in his later years. Like it became. It became more and more important for him to to recruit younger climbers that could take him into the mountains. Yeah. And you know, and a lot of those climbers um went by the wayside pretty quick. Like they'd do a trip with Fred and it was it was intense, you know. Like yeah. when he was even in like in his 80s and stuff, it was a lot of work and you know, he'd get frustrated and things like that. And mm-hmm. and so a lot of those people like just Dropped off like really quick, but there was definitely a handful of core people that he he um yeah he trusted and and they'd stuck with him and had the patience to to take him into the mountains, you know, up until you know he he just couldn't do it anymore, so yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think it was partly like you know, he he was just he was recruiting numbers because he yes, knew exactly that, that at, at that point in his life, like you know, people would, would either, they'd either stick around or they wouldn't. So yeah, you (laughs) know, the more options you have, the better.
1: It's, I, I, I imagine it would have been difficult to recruit partners. I mean, I was like, so starstruck by the fact that I was like sitting at, I was going to say we were sitting at a coffee shop. We weren't, we were at a Mexican restaurant in Seattle and I don't know why we, (laughs) he's like, let's go get coffee and drives us to this like, you know, counter service Mexican place. And they have like maybe the worst coffee I've ever had. And I'm like, Fred, you live in Seattle. What are you doing drinking this coffee? But um he you know, I was so amazed, like, oh my God, here I am sitting with this guy. He wants me to go on this trip. I'm obviously doing this, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um I was talking to some friends about it. He's eighty six at the time, and I was talking to some friends, like, hey, I'm gonna do this, this is gonna be so great. I was living out of my truck, I have no, you know, reason not to. And um and one of my friends, also a climber, was like, I'm not telling you not to go, but Let's just, like, for the sake of the thought exercise, this man is 86. What are you going to do when you're halfway up Assiniboine or Stewart and he has a heart attack at the end of the – let's say he's belaying you, you're halfway up the snow, ice pitch or whatever. Like what, just, like, what are you going to do, you know? And, and that was kind of the moment where it changed for me, where I think as a climber I was, like, fully ready to do the routes that he wanted to do, but not as a ultra-capable, you know, solo self-rescue guru, you know, and that was right. a, that was a very different, um, undertaking. And ultimately, you know, I think as climbers, if we're going to go around and, and pride ourselves on being safe and like, you know, value things like best practice and, you know, and not having a whole team of people have to come rescue you and put themselves at risk and God, it just became such a hard thing to say yes to. And it, you know, I felt terrible about it. And I, I often think about like, man, what would have been fun to go on that trip. Obviously he didn't, you know, <laughs> didn't, didn't have a heart attack that week, but, um, yeah, you know, no, it's like tough.
0: There's a line, there's a, I don't know if you remember, but there's a line <laughs> in the movie, Dave Nettle says, he's like, God, you don't want to be the one known that, as the guy that killed. Fred <laughs> I, I know. Think. But, um, yeah, I hear you. It, it was, I think a lot of people felt that way and were just like, Oh man, I'm not ready to sort of take on that, that added responsibility. There's some scenes at the very end of the movie that, that show that where he's like, calling, calling people and, and trying to, to get people to go and, and it it got harder and harder. I mean, that number, the number of people that trusted partners that, that he had, you know, they, you could count them on one hand in the end, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. I'd like to ask you, um, a few questions about the film itself, if that's all right. Um, sure. Yeah. So how hard was it to strike that balance between making a movie that's obviously going to appeal to climbers and also the more general audience of, of non climbers who don't necessarily have all of the jargon or all of the cultural awareness that some of the climbers might, you know, it's, um, it's tough. I mean, this, this is a conversation I guess that we have with this podcast sometimes where it's Mm -hmm. hard to know how much knowledge to assume and, you know, you don't want to talk past anybody
0: Right, Um, you you know, we knew like the, the climbing world was, was anxious to see this film and, and, and stuff, but, you know, at the same time, like I knew it wasn't going to be like an action packed climbing movie, um, watching, you know, a 90 year old (laughs) (laughs) move around the mountains. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, we just kind of tried to strike that balance, you know? And I think the main thing was like figuring out the themes that we wanted to, um, you know hit on and and that was just like you know sort of fred's you know obsessive compulsive nature his you know passion driven um you know mindset and 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 then just sort of the the whole aging thing you know that's something like absolutely every single one of us has to deal with whether it's like right now or you're dealing with you know, friends or parents or, or whoever yourself, or, you know, it's, it's a universal theme that we all have to sort of, um, accept, you know? So I think, yeah, just trying to, trying to weave those themes throughout the film. And then, I mean, the really tricky part in the editing, I think was, we had Fred's entire life, you know, 94 years, and then we had this like 10 year period. So, Man, it must
1: have been. You must have had a hard time, like leaving some really, really great stuff on the, you know, out of out of the, the final product. And I was wondering what, you know, what would the director's cut of of Dirtbag look like? You know, what were there like great <laughs> stories that you just were not able to tell? And you know, you are kind of like, God, I can't believe this didn't make the final.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, you know, I, I mean, so many things didn't make it in the film. And you know, a director's cut, I would have, you know, I would have, it would have been like you know, I think our first assembly of footage was seven hours long.
1: Oh, Got like man, the yeah.
0: best footage, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then we just whittled, 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 um, whittled it down. I mean, for example, like I went, I went back to China with Fred when he was 90 years old in 2013 and spent like a month in China with Fred and edited this whole piece on it. And it didn't make the final cut. Uh. Because it was just, it was deemed to be like too hard. You know, like It was almost too much suffering. Yeah. And, um, you know, so we tried to strike the balance between that because we didn't want. And even as the film, the way it is now, like we've, we've been criticized by some people, like, oh, you just, you know, there's so much Fred suffering. And we're like, oh my God, you think? Like, you should have seen all. Yeah, you should have <laughs> seen the original cut. <laughs>
1: so. Where what's the status of the tour? Like where can people go see the film?
0: You know, it's, um, we're, we're adding screenings all the time and, um, we're keeping track of those on our website at, um, dirtbagmovie.com. Okay. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, we're, we're trying to track down areas where this movie hasn't been shown and figure out ways to get it seen there or, you know, people are reaching out to us. Um, yeah, you know, so we want to we want to try to share it as much as possible. Yeah. Um,
1: and do you imagine that the film will be, um, you know, eventually released in a way that climbers can access it, downloading it or purchasing it online somewhere?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Late spring, early summer. Okay. Well, I uh, may
1: I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to, um, you know, come on and talk to me about the film and you know what the behind the scenes was like. So, um, yeah. So thanks again and congratulations. It's a, you know it's a really great film. I can't tell you that
0: enough. Oh, thanks a lot, Dave. Great talking with you.
1: Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to catch next week's episode as soon as it's out. And if you like the show and you want to help us out, just find us on iTunes and give us a rating. Have an awesome week.